Friday night, late Friday night, I lost my voice. I came down with a little something. And, you know, uh, a sermon with two chapters in the book of Revelation dealing with a dragon and two beasts is not something you throw to somebody else with 24 hours of study time left. So uh, I'm here. I'm here. And um, I was a little concerned that maybe I would be having you guys watch the video from first service. And I'm concerned because, uh, you know, that is not engaging to watch a video of something that just happened earlier. But I've been sustained. My voice has been sustained. Here I am. We're going to see if I make it. I, I want you guys to cue up the video so you can pick up where I drop off at any point during this sermon. No, but uh, we've got two chapters here in the book of Revelation that we're going to get through. Chapters 12 and 13. Turn there if you'd like right now. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand and one of the ushers will pass one to you. Very important couple chapters here in the book of Revelation. I'm going to give you everything I got. Would you please lean in and give me everything you got? And let's meet in the middle somewhere as we go through this study. We are looking at the, the dragon, the beast, and the other beast. The beast of the sea, the beast of the land, and kind of the setting of spiritual warfare that we find ourselves in. Uh, this is all queued up. By last week, last week we looked at four chapters. I'm only doing two chapters this week. This should be a piece of cake, right? Four chapters compared to two. We went through these seven trumpet blasts of judgment and vindication leading up to the final judgment of Jesus. And there was also a picture of John's prophetic ministry and this picture and prophecy of the two witnesses, the two lampstands, which represent the church testifying to Jesus in this age of unbelief around us and, and us being assailed by opposing spiritual forces in that setting of that prophecy, the two witnesses, which depicts the age of the church that we're in right now. You see the assault of the beast come against the church. And uh, no context is given for the beast. The beast comes out and who's the beast? What in the world? And, and all that gap is filled in right here as we turn to chapter 12 where the dragon and the two beasts emerge. So we'll get a little bit of their backstory, how they fit into the story of the scriptures, Jesus' birth and resurrection. And again, like I said, the context of the spiritual battle that we find ourselves in the midst of today. All of that is going to be enlivened to a greater degree as we go through this reading. Let's read together, as I said, chapter 12. Starting in verse 1, the verses will be on the screens. John sees a great sign appearing in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. 
Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their foreheads or on their right hands so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. Let's pause there this morning. I think that's plenty in two chapters. What would you say? Yeah, okay, so we still got a lot that we're going to get through here. You know, it all begins with this first great sign. This woman introduced who is clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and 12 stars upon her head. And she's not just a fancy lady. This is an image of the nation of Israel taken from Joseph's dream in Genesis 37, verse 9. It's a precise image he has in his dream. Of course, Joseph is there. He's, he's picturing these stars bowing down, and he shares it with his brothers and Jacob, his father. And, and, of course, at this point, Joseph is already hated by his brothers. They're jealous of him. And then he shares this vision where they're all bowing down to him. Not a great idea. 
That's for a separate sermon series in the book of Genesis. But the point is, you know, Joseph together with his brothers and Jacob, it's all the same imagery. So this woman is an image of the nation of Israel. Secondarily, this woman is also a picture of Mary, the mother of Jesus, who represented faithful Israel at the time of Jesus's birth. Right. This is the community of Jews who were expecting the Messiah, the Savior King who had come and save them. So she is also in turn representing this first generation of the church who receives the Messiah. Now in this great sign, Israel is pregnant and about to give birth but is in pain. As I'm sure any pregnant woman who's about to give birth who's epiduralless is in pain. But this torment uh, really signifies the, the torment, the anguish, the oppression that the Israelite people, that God's people had experienced for hundreds of years in, in captivity and, and in states of being subservient to foreign governments as they were for the hundreds of years leading up to the birth of Jesus. Now John then sees another sign, the spiritual backdrop of evil that's apparent at the birth of Jesus. It comes to him with an image of this terrifying dragon with seven heads and seven crowns upon its heads and, and these ten horns, right? All throughout the Old Testament, the picture of a dragon, this Leviathan, this serpent, refers to evil kingdoms, specifically the kingdom of Egypt, which oppressed God's people. But when we see the image of this dragon appearing here, you've got the, you've got the seven heads with the seven crowns. It's like this dragon is representative of all the evil kingdoms that will oppress God's people. But it's not just, you know, the evil kingdoms in general. It, it's personified by the force behind those evil kingdoms that will oppress God's people with those ten horns of complete power. This is said to be Satan himself. And Satan... This rebellious chief angelic being is depicted as sweeping his tail across the stars and taking a third of them. Presumably, this is the angels that join Satan in his rebellion against God. Now, the dragon then postures himself in such a way as to devour the offspring of the woman. Remember, these are all metaphors and pictures that John sees that depict events through the scriptures and through time. You know, none of this is like literally you, did, you didn't have at the birth of Jesus a dragon there with Mary. Any more than, you know, the two witnesses are just two literal people. You know, they were lampstands of the church. This is a picture, right, uh, of, of Satan seeking to defeat Jesus. And you can see that all throughout the Gospels. You know, as Herod, you know, proclaims this genocide over the Jewish children. You know, at the same time as the birth of Jesus. You can see it in Satan attempting to deceive Jesus in the wilderness, and lead him to allegiance of Satan. You can see it through the crowds attempting to throw Jesus off a cliff or attempting to stone him at different points. And certainly the image of the cross comes to mind in his execution. But verse 5 reveals the child was snatched up to God and to his throne. This is his resurrection and his enthronement alongside God, which we saw in our study in Revelation chapter 5. And the woman where this first generation of Christians fled into the wilderness, where they might be kept by God's provision for the same period of days that we see in the prophecy of the two witnesses, that 1,260 days, that 42 months, which speaks to the time between Jesus' ascension and his second coming. That's the 42 encampments that the Israelites had through their wilderness wandering until they arrived at the promised land. Here we are in our wilderness wandering up until the promised land of heaven. You know, then it's time to throw down in heaven, okay? 
All this, uh, you know, these events, the ascension of Jesus, his victory through the cross, his resurrection leads to a throwdown in heaven. And we have war depicted in verse 7. Michael, the chief angel loyal to God, makes war against the dragon or Satan, his counterfeit and counterpart, who is the chief angel disloyal to God, and Satan loses. And he's cast to earth from heaven, and his angels, the demons, are cast to earth alongside him. And then a song is sung of victory regarding the inauguration of the kingdom of God, wherein the accuser, again, this is Satan, is said to be removed from the presence of God in heaven, stripped of his voice, which formerly spoke against God's people, God's faithful. He is triumphed over by the blood of the lamb, like the Passover lamb of old. Through the cross, Jesus has offered his blood as a substitution for our blood to pay the penalty of our sin. There is no longer any legal merit to send us to hell through faith in Jesus because we have all those accusations stripped of their power. No longer can we be condemned. Those powers have been disarmed by the offering of Jesus' life. Now the Bible reflects that this is not a future event to occur, Satan being stripped of his spiritual power and his ability to accuse us. This is something that has already occurred. It's the context and period in which we now live, what's being depicted here. Just as Revelation sets that scene all throughout the different visions and revelations that we've experienced. Satan formerly, as depicted in the Old Testament book of Job, had access to God in his throne room. And specifically in that book, there's Job, and Job is faithful to God, and Satan brings this accusation against God. He says, God, if, if you didn't bless Job so much, if Job's life wasn't as good as it is, if it was bad, he would curse you. He wouldn't be following you anymore, and God allows Satan to go and test Job. And so all this disaster befalls Job, and he fulfills the test, right? And he remains faithful to God in the end. It's a book that's magnificent and complex in its own right. It's worthy of a study in the future. But really, what I'm trying to say is it sheds light on Satan's access to God and his ability to speak both true and false accusations against God's people. It reminds me of the prosecution and the case I saw yesterday where Alex Murdaugh is on the stand, and the prosecutor's just, you know, firing off one after another these accusations against Alex Murdaugh. If you don't know who that is, he's a district attorney of this area in South Carolina who is accused of murdering his wife and his kid to cover up a whole slew of other crimes, financial crimes, drug crimes, all this kind of stuff uh, in, his, in his family's history. He comes from like a line of four generations of district attorneys. It's a big case, and the prosecutor is there just undermining Alex Murdaugh's character saying, and you lied to this person, didn't you? And he goes, yes. And you lied to this one of your best friends, right? Yes. And you lied to this one of your brothers, right? Yes. And you stole money from so-and-so, right? Yes. Stole money from this person too, right? Yes. And it goes on like this. I'm, I swear, it's like 100 questions. You lied here. You stole here. How many pills were you taking a day of the opioids? Were you taking 100 pills a day? Yes, I was taking that many pills. And it's just accusation after accusation. Condemn, condemn, condemn. And that's how I see the voice of Satan speaking all kinds of deceptive things about us. Yes, he wants to deceive us into sin, but then he wants to bring those accusations before God and say, see, Andrew's worthy of hell. You see what he did here? You see what he did there? You see what he did there? And it says in the scriptures that through the cross, 
that ability to accuse us and that standing in that case before God has been removed. That's Jesus' purpose in John chapter 12, verse 31. He said it to the cross, and he says, Now is the time of judgment for the world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And looking back on the cross in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and on, it reads this, He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. That case of sin, the things that we've done, the things that were right, that we deserve the penalty for. He canceled the charge of that legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away. He nailed it to the cross. It's like it's dead. Even though it's inanimate, all those charges are dead. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, that is Satan, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now we have for us, in the presence of God, the promise of not an accuser laying out the case to condemn us to hell, but an eternal advocate in the risen and authoritative work of Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 33 declares, Who will bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? Those who have faith in Jesus. It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? Who can speak a word if God has justified us? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So this is what happened on the cross. It's a massive spiritual victory that unleashes the power of the kingdom of God into our lives so that we have access to it. You know, there was an accuser laying out the case for our condemnation, and now we have an advocate in Jesus always speaking grace and life through our faith and trust in him. Now the downside, sorry, of all this upside is also captured in the song of Revelation 12. Rejoice in heaven, but woe to the earth, for the devil is cast upon it and he's having a temper tantrum knowing his time is short. It's like every time I tell my kids it's almost time for bed. Pandemonium. Absolute disaster, nightmare in my household anytime the time is short. We got the same thing going on here. Evil is experiencing a temper tantrum because the time is short. In response to being cast down, the dragon first pursues the woman, the first generation of the church. But she's given wings by God, just like Israel is said to have received wings by God to move through the wilderness into the promised land so that she, that early generation, might be spared. No matter the attack levied against it, for instance, there's a flood that's sent to consume the early church. Verse 15 says that God made provision to protect her. So the dragon is further enraged and went to make war against her offspring. That is the early church who received this letter first and us to this day. We are those who it says in verse 17, keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. That's a targeted attack. The dragon moves from the woman then to her offspring. I don't know how you can think that this is something that's happening in some future state, in some future age and era of the world. Who's the offspring of this woman? Who follows, you know, who's the community that follows the ascension and victory of Jesus? It's us who keep God's commands and who remain faithful to the name of Jesus. And we are targeted now by the dragon. Just as the early church was targeted by the dragon. We saw that in the letters to the churches. It's sort of like these 87,000 IRS agents that have been unleashed in America. 
Sorry if you work for the IRS. You're a wonderful person. We need our tax dollars to fund the government. And then some. So 87,000 agents, and they're very clear that this is a targeted attack. And it's not targeting most of us. It's targeting anyone who makes over $400,000 a year. Uh, you know, those are the people that those 87,000 agents are going to go after to make sure they're paying their fair share of taxes. And that may actually be some of you in Orange County. I'll tell you, I'm safe. I'm spared from this assault that's coming upon us. But it's a, it's a targeted attack. You, you fit into this category, you prepare to have things come against you. Prepare to be audited. And I think for the rest of us, we go, I, don't know, I think some of those agents are going to get pretty bored and they might get down to me in the list, right? But this is a targeted attack. This is a focus on the people who keep God's commands and hold faithful to the testimony of Jesus. They are going to be targeted by the dragon in the pursuit of the women's children. That is all the generations of the church on up to today. That is including us. The dragon enlists two beasts in Revelation 13, one from the sea and one from the land. This first from the sea fits the exact description in its terrifying amalgamation of the leopard and the bear and the lion, it fits the exact description of the fourth beast taken from the book of Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel is talking about these future successive kingdoms that will overtake each other and that will also be oppressive of God's people. And there's three beasts that lead up to this fourth beast. And everybody essentially agrees that this is all historical. This is Babylon. It's overtaken by Persia, which is overtaken by Greece, which is overtaken by this fourth beast, the Roman Empire. And, and it says that everyone who doesn't worship this beast is going to be subject to torment. They're going to be subject to persecution. I mean, you can, you can tell going through Revelation 13 that this idea of this fourth beast being Rome and that being a type for all future oppressive kingdoms, kingdoms that are going to come after the time of Jesus, it's right there on the surface. Everything lines up, not only from the prophecy of Daniel, but from the way the beast is described. Uh, you know, it demanded the worship of its citizens. That was the way Rome worked, you know. That was the very temptation of compromise in the early church. And to the letters that Jesus was writing to that early church, he said, look, Rome's demanding your worship. Don't give it. Reserve it only for me. The whole world marveled at Rome because it seemed to have amassed the power of the entire known world and subjected all nations unto itself. And the, the worship that was called forth was a worship of Caesar. But that, that worship of Caesar, it wasn't just about Caesar, these individuals. It was the worship of the beast, this evil, oppressive kingdom as a whole. Caesar was representative of the kingdom, just as Putin is representative of Russia, or Xi is representative of China, or Hitler's representative of Germany. The worship of the man was essentially the worship of the system or the nation or the beast as a whole. And it says, again, everyone who was not a Christian, who did not have the names, their names written in the book of life, they went along with this system of worshiping the beast. Everyone was deifying this ungodly and unholy authority of the beast derived from Satan, that is the dragon. Now, ironically, Jesus rejected this same unholy authority. Jesus rejected this same unholy position and influence that the beast wields. Remember, Jesus was offered the kingdoms of the world by Satan in the temptation I referenced earlier. Satan said, I will give you influence. I'll give you power over the kingdoms of this world if only you bow down and you worship me, which he rejected. Whereas the beast has received that worldly authority and influence through its devotion to Satan, to the dragon. 
Now that evil power and influence the beast receives over the world is depicted as complete and total. Just like the Romans exercised, just like other totalitarian regimes have exercised since. For if one of God's people was to be sent into captivity, to captivity they would go, it says in the Scripture. Like, that's the state of John. John, who's writing the book of Revelation, who's received these visions, he was sent by the Roman Empire into captivity, and into captivity he went. And if you were going to be sent to the sword by the Roman Empire, like Paul, like Peter, if you were going to be murdered, well, to the sword you would go. So this calls all these experiences under this oppressive oppressive regime. It calls not for a future patience and faithfulness for a time that's going to be coming in some future state, but as verse 10 calls for a present patience and endurance and faithfulness, faithfulness, which was the call to Christians of the first century, which we saw in the letters to the churches, and it's the call to Christians of this century and all throughout all the centuries to patient endurance and faithfulness amidst the pressures of the culture around us. Now, if the power of the first beast were not terrible enough, we have a second that emerges from the land who's in league with the first beast and with the dragon. And this beast speaks like the dragon, meaning like Satan, and functions like a high priest of Satan, leading the inhabitants of earth to worship the first beast, the false worldly kingdom and its leaders, and giving breath to the image of the beast, like a false prophet would represent an idol that can't speak or hear for itself. So, you know, those false prophets would speak for the idol. So this second beast of the land is going to represent this image of the beast and give breath to it. Now, the second beast was also given the ability to perform great signs and deceive many into the worship of the beast and by extension the dragon and jesus warned this would happen in matthew chapter 24 verse 24 he said they're going to be false messiahs they're going to be false prophets and it's not that they're going to try to perform signs and they're not going to work and that's what makes them false no they're going to be false and they're going to perform signs and they're actually going to be effective in the performance of their signs so what jesus is warning us about is hey don't just follow someone based on their effectiveness and their power They're going to be political figures. They're going to be economic figures. They're going to be uh, religious figures. They're going to stand up before you, and they're actually going to demonstrate their power, and they're going to be very effective. But what validates them is not what they can do. It's to where they point you on the other side of what they do. Do they point you to allegiance to God and to his kingdom and to his values or to the beast and the worldly system and its values? You know, if anyone refused the guidance of the second beast to worship the image of the first beast, as in the first century when Christians refused to worship the effigies built to Caesar, they were to be put to death. Just as we see in the letters to the early churches that Antipas, the faithful witness, was put to death not by giving his worship to Caesar. Now, everyone's most enthusiastic curiosity is directed to the final ability of the second beast that it's granted who was lastly given the capacity to mark all those who were of the beast on their forehead or on their hand so that only those bearing the mark could buy or sell. And the number of that mark, which corresponds to the beast and takes discernment and insight for us to understand, is the number 666. Now, what is this mark? I know this is the question you've all been waiting for the answer to. You're like, this is why we got it in this series. This is what I'm here for. I've been going through this for weeks, and I just want to know what's the mark of the beast. Well, the mark, to me, I believe, represents the combined power 
of the political and religious system, fused as it was in the time of the Romans, to discriminate based on one's perceived loyalty to the nation as a whole. Now, some think this mark is literally going to happen in the future on your forehead or in your hand through technology in some way, like, okay, this hasn't happened yet, and we're going to get a chip in our hand or a chip in our brain, or there's going to be a barcode, or there's going to be something with Bitcoin, digital currency. I'm, I'm weirded out by Bitcoin, too, for different reasons. But, you know, my personal understanding, this is QR codes because I can't access them. I have a, I have a dumb phone. I went to the Santa Barbara Zoo. It was the first time I couldn't eat because I had a dumb phone. I, I, you had to order from the QR code. I had no ability to eat any longer. So what I'm trying to say is evil has broken out in the epicenters of Santa Barbara Zoo. <laughs> but it doesn't take digital currency or tech to exclude people economically. That's what I want to make sure we understand. It was already happening 2,000 years ago when the church was being marginalized economically for not offering worship to Caesar. The fact is any civil and economic structure can be employed as a weapon by those in power. It doesn't matter if it's the tax system. That can be used against you by the people in power. It doesn't matter if it's bitcoins or you know chips in your skin or paper currency or anything else you know tariff sanctions all of it can become a tool to exclude god's people if there's a nation of oppression over god's people consider china the state of china right now this would have been relevant for first century christians what they were experiencing and what jesus said to them in their letters and it may be a little less relevant for us. We're going, when's the mark of the beast going to happen? And we're going to be excluded from buying and selling. In China, they're saying it's happening right now. They've been saying that. You know, in China, their spiritual leaders, their pastors are appointed by the government, by the atheist government. Can you imagine that? You come to church and me, I've been appointed in my role by the atheist government to lead you spiritually. Uh, yeah, try and rebel against that. Uh, appoint your own leader like they've done in some places in China. You know how China responds? We'll bulldoze your church. We'll take away your wealth. You know, that doesn't take digital currency and chips under the skin to economically oppress a group of people that are resistant to the nation. So the mark of the beast need not be a physical mark. Just as our sealing with the Holy Spirit is not a physical mark, it has to do with spiritual alignment. They're saying, look, you can accept our leaders and you can come into alignment and we'll let you have the church building. But if you don't come into alignment with us and you don't give your ultimate devotion to the nation, then we'll take away your church building, we'll take away your leaders, and we'll take away your wealth, right? It has to do with the spiritual alignment. And the 666 need not be one of 100 proposed numerical interpretations for people's names throughout the centuries, like, oh, it was Nero, it was this person, it was Hitler, because you can take it in the Greek and you can turn it into a number, or you can add an, uh, a the in front of it, or you can put his title back here, or you can translate it into Portuguese and then you can put it into numbers and it doesn't need to be any one of the hundred names and it could be all those names if you want it to be if it fits with this scheme but rather the number to me represents that unholy trinity of the dragon the beast of the sea and the beast of the land who is a counterfeit presents itself as a counterfeit to God the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit this is an unholy trinity that wants to set itself up in the place of God. And while the number of completeness is seven all throughout Revelation, the number of God then, the number of six falls short of perfection. It's the number of man 
All who are marked by Satan carry the number of men. They are earth dwellers, as the book of Revelation calls them, and nothing more, whereas we carry the seal of the Holy Spirit. Now, so much here in Revelation chapter 12 and 13. What do we walk away with? Maybe you have a different interpreting scheme than I do as you look at the book of Revelation, but these are truths that I think apply to all of us, all Christians and all generations, things we can walk away with. And this is somewhat of a bleak part of Revelation when we consider the nature of the world and the setting that we might fall into at any point in human history as people who follow God's commands and are faithful to his name it's rather bleak but there is only a sense that it's bleak if you're focused on the world if you're taking to heart chapter 12 well then the the victory and the celebration can already begin and we'll get to more victory and celebration later on in our study but the first thing I want to encourage you to do on the other side of reading this account is cling to your spiritual victory cling on for dear life to your spiritual victory that's been achieved through christ's resurrection and his victory over satan satan is cast down his power is limited his time is short so as jesus said fear not those who can kill the body and after that they can't do anything else Satan doesn't have the ability to condemn any of us. You know, he, he, all he can do is make a mess of the world with the time that he has left. But even that is going to come to an end. So don't be afraid. Cling to your spiritual victory. But so many of us are still clinging to this world and this body too tightly. You know, those who are celebrated alongside the Lamb in that song of victory are those who did not love their life even to the point of death. They weren't clinging on so tightly to the things of this world. They were releasing them. And so they have joined in the eternal victory of Jesus. Preservation of this physical life is not priority one. Our confidence and joy comes from clinging to the spiritual promise that our accuser is defeated, our advocate is enthroned, and the kingdom of God is eternal. And no one can stand against it. Remember what Jesus said to the church in the letters. He said, Some of you are going to die. He didn't say some of you might die. He said some of you are going to die. The worst is going to happen. And then he said, don't be afraid. Some of you are going to die. The worst is going to happen. Don't be afraid. So the times are such that we're sent into captivity. Into captivity we'll go. If the times are such that by the sword we'll be sent to it, Then by the sword, we will go. By the sword, we'll die. The book of Revelation does not recommend fear or anxiety. It says whatever trials come, whatever comes, let me set this up. The worst could happen, live victoriously. Live victoriously. Demonstrate your patient endurance and faithfulness no matter the times because your victory is assured. Nothing can take that away from us. Nothing in the news, nothing in the future, nothing in world events cling to your spiritual victory. And in the meantime, this is the second thing I really walk away with. This encouragement not to confuse the kingdoms of this world with the kingdom of God. Do not confuse worldly kingdoms for God's kingdom. Got to make that distinction. The beast was given a power by the dragon to blaspheme against God, against his name, against his dwelling place, 
and against the people of heaven. When you blaspheme something, you take something that's holy and pure, God himself, holy and pure, and you link him with something that is impure. So the power of the beast was the ability to link something pure, God himself, first of all, his dwelling place, which is his people, and his people in heaven, his kingdom, with things that are impure. So when anyone takes the kingdom of God and links it with earthly kingdoms and confuses the association of the two, it's taking something pure and holy and blaspheming it with something impure and necessarily unholy. As Christians, we're taught to respect authorities, to respect the state. Even the early Christians were called to this in Rome, which was an evil nation. So we, too, ought to respect all authorities. We ought to seek the prosperity of the nation through our advocacy. We ought to seek God's purposes in and through the nation in which we live. But the best nation of this world is still a place of exile compared to the kingdom of God. Never confuse that. The best nation in all of world history is nothing but a state of prison for a believer when we consider the promise of the kingdom of God. That's how far apart the two are from each other. Never confuse that because the moment you start to give worship to a nation or any of its representative leaders, that is the moment you may be deceived to worship a beast and not the Lamb of God. Finally, beware of the methods of the beast. But where are the methods of the beast? You know, if there's one thing conveyed about the dragon and the beast is that they are powerful. They're very powerful in the world in which we live. It says the world was filled with wonder at the beast of the sea. Everybody went after the beast whose names were not written in the book of life. This is popular. It's worshipped. It's proud. It's arrogant. It's blasphemous. It's making all these claims about itself. It's setting itself up and everyone's saying, yeah, that's right. And the beast from the land was able to perform great signs like calling down fire from heaven in the view of everyone. That's, it's like Elijah, the true prophet of God, goes against the false prophets of Baal in the Old Testament. He says, well, call down fire by your God. And they can't do it, and Elijah does, and it consumes all the false prophets. Well, now the Bible's telling us we're living in a time when the false prophets will perform those signs. They'll call down fire, and the fire will actually come down. That second beast had the power to kill and to weaponize the economic system. Wealth it had and the ability to exclude. So beware the methods of the beast. Seeking worldly power. Seeking worldly influence. Seeking wealth. Seeking to manipulate using the tools of society to get our desired future in the world. Because you might end up in the dragon's lair when you use the methods of the beast. Let me put it to you this way. If, if the dragon came to you if Satan came to you and said, I can give you a successful, cushy, insulated life protected from all the potential disasters of the future, if only you bowed down and worship me, would you take that offer? Of course you wouldn't. You say, no way would I do that. But that subtle offer is being presented to Christians day after day after day. Here's the way to success. Here's the way to being insulated. Here's the way to living a life of ultimate comfort where you don't have to worry about God's commands and the faithfulness to his name and the hardship that might accompany that. Constantly that offer is being put forward to us through the methods and the path of the beast. You know, if Satan, if, 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 if the dragon came to you and said, look, I will give you your preferred future for the nation of America. 
We can dictate it to go exactly as you want as opposed to what everyone else wants. All you have to do is bow down and give your allegiance to me. Would you do it? And yet that's the subtle offer constantly being placed before Christians. Oh, you have a preferred and desired future for America? All you need to do is go about it, pursuing this power and this influence and finding this wealth, and through these schemes of the beast, you'll acquire it. And we end up in the dragon's lair. Our method, our mode is fixed. We're immovable no matter what happens. Our mode is love, submission, humility, purity, holiness, and self-sacrifice in the way of Jesus no matter the times. We are those, and this is why we have a target on our back, we keep God's commands. We don't use the times as an excuse to throw off God's commands and live like the rest of the world. We are the ones who keep God's commands, and we are faithful to his name. And we believe that God is going to judge the beasts and do away with them forevermore in his perfect timing. It's not necessary for us to do that. It's necessary for us to keep God's commands and not follow the methods of the beast, but follow the method and the way of Jesus at all times. Powerful messages and reminders for us from these two chapters of Revelation. Let's let those sink into our hearts by way of the Holy Spirit. Would you take a posture of prayer with me as we're moving toward closing out our time in this study together? And Heavenly Father, I just want to start by praising you for the victory that has come through your Son, Jesus Christ. Through his death, his burial, his resurrection, his blood substituted in the place of our blood. No longer is there an accusation, no longer for those who have faith in Jesus. Is their track record, is their legal indebtedness, is their past a tool of Satan to accuse and condemn them, to define who they are, to define who their future is. Lord, you have rewritten all of that. You have made us a new creation in your kingdom. The legal indebtedness has been canceled. There is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. We are what you say we are, and you say we're forgiven, and you say there's grace. That's our spiritual victory, and what awaits us is your eternal kingdom. So, Lord, I pray that we would cling to that spiritual victory so tightly that our joy, our satisfaction, our meaning, our purpose is hidden in that. It's hidden in your victory. It's hidden in heaven so that nothing in this world could touch it. Nothing in this world could take it away. And, Lord, that'll be tested if our hope and our satisfaction and our security is here on earth. That'll be tested. And it'll be revealed in our hearts when it's taken away from us. But Lord, the hope and the joy and the security that we have in you, nothing can touch. So help us cling to our spiritual victory. Lord, let us never confuse even the greatest kingdoms of this world with your kingdom. Your kingdom is holy and pure. It's other. It's eternal. It's ruled 100% by you, your son, Jesus Christ. It's far greater. It's far better than the best that we could build as human beings in this world. Lord, let us long, not for just some future in this world, let us long constantly for heaven, for your kingdom, for its fulfillment, for your return when you're going to establish it forever. And until then, Lord, give us patient endurance and faithfulness to your commands. Let us not be tempted to follow the methods of the beast. Their pressures might Beset us on all sides, God. We want to walk in your ways, in your ways alone. We want to be purified. We want to stand out. Even if that brings us worldly trouble, we won't shrink back. We're not afraid. We stand 
in your strength, in the strength of the Holy Spirit, who is the seal upon us. So Lord, encourage my brothers and sisters, would they long for the kingdom of God? Would they cling to the spiritual victory that they have in you? Would they resist the temptations of Satan to live just a fine little comfortable life, fitting in and blending into the system of this world? God, will we resist the devil and would he flee from us as we cling to your son, Jesus Christ? I pray this in Jesus' name over my brothers and sisters. Amen.